Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome everyone to New Books Podcast. My name is Yakir Englander and I'm your host today. And today I am more than happy to host Professor Alec Ryrie from Durham University. And we're going to speak about your your new book, Unbelievers, An Emotional History of Doubt. Uh, Welcome, Alec. Hi, Yakir. It's great to be with you. Thank you so much. Um, Alec, your book is, 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 is fascinating also in the way you write it. Um, I, I, I read it in, in two days, which is very unique. Um, it's, it's so clear. And, um, and the questions that you bring and the way how you touch it um, are fascinating. So maybe the first question that I would love to, to know a little bit more, um, what made you to decide to write a book about unbelievers? Uh, thanks. So it's a it's a it's a good question. I mean, the, the the easy answer is that I stumbled across some stuff when I was writing a, a, a previous book. I'm a historian of of Protestantism and of the Reformation, and I was writing a book about um, Puritans. You know that kind of intense Protestant piety of the sixteenth uh, seventeenth century, and I kept finding some of these people. Who were wrestling with what they called atheism, and you know they were, and they're explicit. You know they're tempted to believe that there is no God, and that's not what they're supposed to be saying. You know these are supposed to be some of the most intensely pious people out there, um, and so I thought there's there's something going on here, and so that became a thread that I started started pulling at. Um, but the reason I kept pulling at it uh, and ended up. Um, trying to, to to write this stuff up as a as a book length project is not just because I found a lot of material that I thought was 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 worth talking about, but because the more I dug into it, the more I I thought this is actually helping us not just to solve this kind of historical oddity, but to reflect on you know what I think is 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 one of the the defining questions. Of, of our times, which is, 
um, you know, as I, as I, I, I talk in the introduction to the book about, um, you know, how Charles Taylor frames this, that we've gone from a world in which 500 years ago um, in, you know, our, our Western societies, he says, so, you know, in, in kind of European, European derived societies where believing in God seemed not only normal, but absolutely the water that people swam was it was 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 in inescapable part of life whereas now for for many people belief in god seems not just like an option but an option that's actually difficult to attain um and unbelief appears like the the default option and we've got you know standard off the shelf explanations of how that happened which are mostly to do with science and philosophy and the Enlightenment, and you kind of tri- can trip off the, the names of all the people involved, you know, Spinoza, Voltaire, Darwin, Nietzsche, all this stuff. Um, and the more I dug into what was happening in the earlier period, before that narrative is really supposed to start, the more I thought, no, this is where the action is. Um, because this is the point where people are starting to feel kind of nameless tugs of of temptation, their emotions pulling them away from belief. And it's only later on, once um, their their doubts have got a, a real sort of emotional and intuitive grip on them, that they then start coming up with philosophies um to 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 justify you know i mean most of us are capable of rationalizing whatever it is that we want to believe in the way that we want right right. philosophy badly enough you're going to find one um and so i thought what the story that i want to tell is this ended up as the subtitle of the book an emotional history of doubt um you know we all know i think it's I, i don't think this is controversial that people come to religious faith not out of a kind of purely rational calculated method you know we we don't attain faith that you know if you if 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 you if you do um you know by by you know sitting down you know with with an account book and kind of adding up pros and cons and and, and eventually saying well yes you know it's it's a more intuitive whole person type of decision when i say it's emotional i don't mean it's irrational but it's not merely rational and all i wanted to say is that hey maybe unbelief obeys the same rules and the process of leaving faith has the same kind of deep emotional logic to it as we all know the process of gaining faith does and that was the story i was trying to tell so when we we think about um the the first unbelievers that um, um that we see in in the book in a way they need to rebel right i mean they need to rebel against something um because the norma in in that time was to believe and i wonder if can you say a little bit more about like the first steps of becoming unbelievers like what what they what the questions that they brought to the table where they and also i'm interested about like um at the beginning what was what were the boundaries 
of the ability of them like to say, I, I, I can guess that it's not that someone just came and said, like, I don't believe in the divine. It was something else. So I wonder if you can bring some of these questions. Sure. Well, I mean, I, I don't want to say about what the beginning was, because um, I only begin my book in the Middle Ages. And there is a deep history to this going back into ancient times, which I'm... I'm no, no, no. I mean, I mean in the 16th century. But within yes, the, yes. the story that, I, that, that I'm trying to tell um, begins in the European Middle Ages, um, you know, the so-called Age of Faith, uh, when you have for many centuries together in in most of Europe a single dominant religious culture. Not everybody belongs to it, but you've got to make a conscious effort to not belong to it. It's 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 the norm. Um, and it dominates the intellectual world in in particular. And that means that you don't have the intellectual resources to to pose questions um, that that run against that that structure and allow you to to um, to develop other ways of of thinking about the divine and about the universe. This is a, the you know, medieval theology and knowledge a really powerful web of, of of thought that everybody is woven into. But even though you can't question it in its own terms because the resources just aren't there to do it, you can kick against it, and 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 people do. And so, in terms of the 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 emotions that I'm trying to track through this, um, well, I mean, there's two emotional streams that I think run run through the story. But the one that we that we start with is anger, um, because you may be woven into, you may be immersed in this this world of of, of medieval Christianity, um, but that doesn't mean that you like everything about it. Um, the, I mean, anger most obviously means anger with a with a priest, um, with with you know God's self proclaimed representative, um, and of course, you know people are picking fights with their priests the whole time about all kinds of stuff. You know, <laughs> all priests are are perfect human beings. Um, and when you get into one of those fights, then the priest is very likely to say, well, you've got to do what I say because I'm God's representative. And then you've got a choice of do you back down um, or do you say, well, in that case, I'm going to take God on as well. Um, and, 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 and people do this, um, often not in a kind of sophisticated way. And you know, some of the scholars who've written about this are really dismissive about it. So, you know, this doesn't mean anything more than you know a, a, a drunkard, um, you know, shouting insults in a bar. But I think you know, it's 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 worth listening to those sorts of, of voices as well. They're kind of raw, they're inarticulate, but they tell you something about the well, the emotional world that that, that people are living in, wanting to kick against. This institution, which is presuming to tell them how to live their lives, um, you know, its moral constraints ain't always welcome, um, and also sometimes that anger get, really does get directed at God. Not just he doesn't just get sort of brought in as like the second in a boxing match. Um, <laughs> I mean, if if you have prayed earnestly to God. For, for something for your child's life or whatever and and your prayer is not answered as you would like it to be then anger with God 
is is an, <laughs> an entirely rational response. It's a deeply biblical response. Um, of course, being angry with God is quite different from wondering whether God's really there. But right. that, of I, I think, a kind of deeply human response to that sort of phenomenon of, of appealing to God in prayer um, and, 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 and you know, finding it not answered. And in the medieval church in particular, that, that it goes out of its way sometimes to emphasize how difficult faith is. Um, you know, in particular, you know, the single miracle that medieval Christianity is built around is, is the miracle of transubstantiation, that um, when a, a priest celebrates mass duly, then the the bread and wine are miraculously and wholly transformed into Christ's actual body and blood, um, and you know that takes a little bit of believing. Um, uh, you know, it did it does now. It did back then, and there's there's loads of evidence from the Middle Ages of of people struggling to believe that this is really happening. Um, and you know, the, the one of the most regular. Uh, kind of preacher's tales is the miracle story where somebody is miraculously enabled to to see what's really happening, to see the kind of bleeding flesh on on, on the altar. Um, those stories only make sense if people are are struggling to believe it. So it doesn't matter if the philosophers are telling them that it's true. Um, in everyday life, there is a kind of of basic intuition which 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 people are. Are struggling with. I compare it in the in, in in the book, maybe a bit mischievously, to to being a flat earther today, um, in the sense that there's no intellectual justification for it. The entire scholarly establishment of the of the whole day thinks it's it's a laughable idea. It's contemptible. It's, it's beneath engagement. But a certain amount of kind of bluntly applied common sense from a free thinker. You know, you look out the window, the earth doesn't look like it's a sphere. Um, and so if you're uneducated and suspicious that the church is a conspiracy working against you, um, and you've got a certain amount of, of independence of mind, then it can lead you down these, these sorts of paths. Um, that doesn't make it intellectually defensible, but I think it's the beginning of, or one of the beginnings of the explanation of why people people start feeling this kind of way. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So, so I wonder if we can, what are the voices when people are feeling um, anger towards the divine? Um, so we hear, if I understand, we hear critique against the priest, right? Like, as a representer of the divine and then sure. maybe towards the whole church and then there is a moment when it come like straight towards like the the divine and i wonder when we critique god when we critique the divine i can see it in two different ways there there are the there is a critique which is kind of a dialogue right it's like god why you have why you forgot me where are you? You are not with me. Um, but it doesn't mean that this critique lead to to stop to believe. Um, but there is a moment, there is a moment, and it's not a rational thing, as you say, 
where the voices um, around are going to, st- to, at one point, to say, I don't believe, or that it also can go to a different path, which will be, um, God, you become irrelevant to my life. And I wonder if we can see all these different voices or you can see more to one direction or another. Thank you. That's a really interesting way of of, of, of putting it. Um, I mean, I, I guess that that sense of, of fury against God and indifference towards him, are, I, I, I think those are different strands. Um, and obviously, as, as you say, you know, being angry with God, remonstrating against God is, is a is a deeply theological thing to do. It's a deeply biblical thing to do. You know, I mean, this is this is this right. is Job. This is this is you know Abraham remonstrating over Sodom and Gomorrah. This is um, you know, in that sense, arguing with God is a profound act of faith. Um, but I also think it's not a coincidence that churches and religious authorities have often been very nervous of that instinct to, to argue with God and you know, have never encouraged this institutionally because it's, it's walking a thin line. Um, and I guess the, you, know, you were asking which voices you, you can hear. The, one of the places where I found myself tracking these voices is in the church courts where people are being accused of blasphemy um, or, or, or other other kinds of, of, of spoken offences, and it's pretty clear that when you you get people called up for, I'm not going to repeat some of the stuff that that, that they, they say because you, you know, this this may be a family show. Um, you know, people get called up for saying some pretty colourful things um, about about God, about Jesus, about the Virgin Mary, um, and it's pretty clear once they get hauled out of the tavern and brought in front of an inquisition tribunal and somebody reads their words back to them and they're thinking, well, I didn't really mean that. You know, I was, I, 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 I was in the middle of it. I was losing and, you know, um, so, you know, people say stuff without fully meaning the theological implications of, of, you know, the words that escape them in the, in the heat of the moment. But those words aren't, meaningless you know i mean you say outrageous blasphemous stuff to shock the people around you to shock yourself um to to test god to you know to buy it's 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 an act of of defiance <clears throat> which is you know so many of the medieval stories about this you know we'll, we'll talk about people being struck down but then of course you say this stuff and you're not struck You've defied God, and He's not replied, or hasn't appeared to reply. Um, and that itself can, well, at the very least, it is going to make it easier for you to do it again, and maybe to up the ante next time to go a little bit further. Um, and you've tried out those words on your tongue, um, you know. So even if you if, if if you don't actually believe the outrageous things that you've you've said they've they've become thinkable you've kind of looked over the cliff um and so in that sense i i think that kind of anger 
while on the one hand it can be this sort of deep act of faith, it also opens up the possibility of your of your world going the other way. Um, but indifference is much more dangerous from the from the point of view of of, of, of conventional faith. Um, and there, I would I would point towards some of the things that do start to happen within the intellectual realm with the arrival of the Renaissance, um, which you know puts so much emphasis on the the scholarly and the moral tradition coming from the ancient world, from the pagan Greeks and the Romans, and therefore is trying mm-hmm. to see okay, this pagan morality actually has a great deal that Christians should imitate in it. And it becomes very common for, for the Renaissance scholars to say, look how much more virtuous these mere pagans were than us Christians. This is shameful. We should be we should we should far outshine them. But that does carry the sense that, that you know the, the, the implication that you can say, oh okay, well if if they were so much better than we were, then maybe our faith isn't that important and we can attain the the sort of virtues and ideals that we all agree are important and we can downplay all this you know doctrine um and maybe christianity should more be about living the kind of perfect moral exemplars that the the ancient scholars um are, are are leading us to and that's the kind of thought process that eventually lands you up in you know, the, the man who becomes the the great exemplar of this kind of indifference um, to, to 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 God, simply refusing to to allow him to be a, a part of their mental world, um, which is Machiavelli, um, who's I mean whether whether you can call Machiavelli an an atheist in our sense of the word, I'm not sure it's a useful question. I just don't think he is interested in the Indeed. issue of of, of, yeah. of, of of whether or not there there is a God. He is interested in power in this world um, and and how it's to be attained. And if people believe in God, then that's a, a, a question which a politician interested in power needs to be aware of. Um, but you know the 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 politics of Jesus Christ as somebody who who talks about peace and does not enforce his rule he finds just laughable. So that takes you down a a a, a, a much a much darker, much colder road. Yeah. So. So in that way, it's it's so interesting because I think about the Jewish tradition that speaks a lot, much more about the Jewish action um, than about faith. Like when you go to the synagogue, you really don't know what the person next to you is believing, if they believe at all. But it was in many times in history, this was not the main question. The question was, are you still, do you still pray together? Do you still do charity together and what do you believe in became um, less important and I wonder if you can maybe it's um, I wonder if you can if you can explain a little bit about the Protestant movement and how the how its face and its rebel against the the church um, how how it affects 
this history of unbelievers? Sure, and I mean, I, I, I think that's that question of the the relationship between faith as something you know inward and subjective, and and and, and action is a really important way, really helpful way into it. Um, and I mean, I, I, I should say um, for a lot of this, I've, I've drawn on a, on a terrific book that came out with, with Princeton a couple of years ago by my friend Ethan Shagan at Berkeley, who's, who's written a, a, a history of the notion of belief running, running through this, this period. Um, because in the, in the Catholic world, the, there's something analogous to the the kind of ethic that you're describing in Judaism where you know action is is fundamentally important um, and you know the, the the significance of the sacraments which you know of, of, of consecrated actions um, within within Catholicism is 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 profound um, and it's possible for belief for faith which you know is is, is fundamentally important to some extent, to be to be shared with the whole community, and by your affirmation of participation in the community, that's faith, even if you may not be able to give a full and detailed account of everything that you believe. And it's on that basis that you can baptize infants into the faith, and so forth. Um, Martin Luther, of course, has this 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 great crisis in the early 16th century, which leads him to. Um, Really, to dynamite this entire structure and to take a large part of of, of Christian Europe eventually into schism with him, and for him, faith is the you know the is is the explosive with which he he detonates that that structure. Um, he wants to to argue that faith is not simply one of the theological. Virtues, as as Christian theology had long argued, but the pivotal virtue, the gateway quality, mm-hmm. by which it's possible to to attain a a, a, a true a saving relationship with God. Um, that everything else, you know, the, there, there are other virtues that follow from it, but but it's 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 the crux. Um, and hence his famous doctrine of of salvation by faith alone. Um, and then, of course, the answer is, well, what do you mean by faith? Uh, and Luther is very clear that faith does not mean intellectual assent to a series of doctrines. It doesn't mean kind of signing up to a manifesto, um, or at least it doesn't just mean that. It also, you know, what we might call belief, um, it also means something much closer to, to what in English we might call trust. You know, it's something it's something relational. Um, uh, you know, it means throwing yourself on God's mercy and and depending upon that absolutely, rather than on anything that you can do or that the church can do. Seeing seeing God as your as your only and your exclusive savior. And so, in that sense, it's, I, I think this is part of the emotional story that i'm that i'm trying to tell but because of this because of what he's he's trying to do there this this extraordinary emphasis that's that's placed on faith it's being asked to carry an awful lot of weight and and one result of that is that he's having to launch broadsides 
against the different kind of faith, the different different understanding of what what belief and practice are um, that are, are are out there in the established church. So skepticism becomes a fundamental part of his. You know, he's launching a movement based on faith, and the first thing he's got to do is to train people in skepticism. Um, to get them to to disbelieve all the, the the doctrines which the church has has been um, promulgating for all these centuries, and which he's now saying, "Oh, this is all a con. You've been tricked." All that that sense of suspicion that you may have had, kind of nameless, lingering down the years, it's all true. The whole thing is a lie. Um, you know, purgatory is just there to to, to empty your pockets. The the Pope's authority is not bestowed by Christ. It's invented so that he can live in a palace. Um, and of course, what makes this so corrosive is that the church establishment, the, the Catholic church establishment, we can begin to call it, has to respond in the same way. To say, no, now all these new doctrines, as they would say it, that Luther is, is preaching, you've got to disbelieve them as well. So suddenly you're in a world where in order to be a faithful Christian, you've got to become expert in deploying skepticism. You've got to know not just what you have to believe, but what to disbelieve. Um, and so in that sense, in, and I mean, I, it's, it, 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 it sounds trite, but I think there's, there's an extent to which it's true. The Reformation, the Protestant Reformation turns everybody in Europe into an unbeliever. Um, because everybody has to work out what they're willing to believe and therefore what they're not. And of course, once you've got entire populations trained in playing those sorts of games, you'll find that they start doing things with their newfound skills that you didn't intend. So officially, officially both sides want you to become a rational theologian And to understand to know what you believe in what you you don't believe in but actually by creating this new soup of they also raising a lot of feelings because it's not only I'm sure that the priests do not speak only about what you believe but they speak with anger there are emotions there so in a way what you teach us which is exactly the essence of the book that the emotions are It's like there is a need to start feeling emotions towards each side and then also to not to believe in each side, which makes you also to feel what does it mean not to believe with the authority of the church? Yes, um, that, that you've, you've got that, that kind of, 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 of maneuver that everybody is forced to engage in you know so the, the belief used to be simple a default option and I mean let's not get this out of out of context for most people it remains simple in in most countries in most societies there's there's a strong religious consensus even after the Reformation and of course most people go along with that consensus because that's what most of us do most of the time um, but that is process is never as simple as as it had been and for the for the religious authorities and this goes especially on the on the Protestant side because in some ways this is the new world that they've made and they're more comfortable with it 
um, but there's, there's an equivalent on the Catholic world too. They're not that unhappy about this. They, they want to get people away from uh, what they see as having been a, 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 a simplistic, unreflective, you know, almost pagan mode of belief where they didn't really know what it was that they were believing to a, a more sophisticated, engaged, aware, um, you know, more deeply faithful, more adult, if you like, mode of of faith. And for many people that works. And I mean, this is famously an, an, an age where, you know, it's it's been said that this is the age when most of Europe is actually Christianized for the first time after you know, having, having the, the initial conversion from paganism having been been quite superficial. That can be overdone. But it's it's certainly people's ordinary people's engagement with their faith is is greatly deepened in this period. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But not everybody makes the transition into this more sophisticated post skepticism faith as as cleanly as they are supposed to. Um, and I think this is the reason why you start to get atheism. As a, as, as, a, as a problem that people become explicitly concerned about. That word is coined in, in all the European languages um, you know, very quickly uh, in, in, in the 16th century. It hadn't been in circulation before. Um, it becomes something that people are, are deeply anxious about, both in others and in themselves, um, because it's, it's been an option that's, that's opened up. Now, I, I think if, you were, if you're one of the Protestant theologians, I think um, John Calvin you know, comes very close to saying this, you would say, well, that's good because that sort of doubt has always been there. And now we're just dragging it out into the open where we can see it. Um, and, you know, it's, 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 it's always better to know, to know what, you're, what you're up against. But it does make that sort of, of process of doubt an explicit option. Hmm. So we spoke about... Um the emotion of anger. In, in the book, you also mention another emotion, which is anxiety. And I wonder, now that you, you bring and you, you tell us how this distinction among, among churches and among um, and the people who need to choose, I can understand more about the anxiety that is happening in the area, but can you share with us a little bit more about the anxiety? And if I can, if I may ask you also to focus on, I wonder about the anxiety of the people who choose not to believe. What sure. happened to them too? Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll come to them, but I think they're the, the active choice not to believe, especially if it's one that you're anxious about is, is one that comes, I think, relatively late in the story because the the beginning of this of the, of the story of anxiety as, as as i see it is one of of doubts gnawing away at people at at moments of crisis and th- that kind of anxiety r- is rarely focused around the, the the most fundamental issues is there a god um Although in those those moments when you're uttering your desperate prayer and it feels as if that prayer is just going into a void and the universe is laughing at you, you know, I mean that's the, the, the you know 
that's that's one manifestation of that that kind of anxiety. Um, but it often well, I, I think there's one issue above all which which anxiety tends to cluster around both in the medieval period and and after the Reformation, um, which is the the question of of the immortality of the soul, you know, of what happens to us when we die. Um, a, Christian teachings, whatever church you belong to, very clear on this point. Um, but I think it's fair to say that Christian doctrine about life after death is on one level counterintuitive. You know, dead people look awfully dead. Um, and while and, and Christian theology is also very clear that animals, when they die, are just dead. They have no souls. That's the end of it. Um analogizing from animal death to human death doesn't require any great philosophical sophistication. Um, if you yourself are dangerously ill, um, and there's a whole question about the, the implications of medicine as a practice for belief, but let's not go there right now. Um, or if, 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 you, if, if somebody that you love is dangerously ill or has died, then holding on to faith that you're within this structure of, of immortality and eternity can be a real struggle. Um, and it, it seems to me that it's, it's there above all, again and again, that you find this sort of sense of anxiety. Do I really believe this? Can I really be sure? Bubbling up again and again. Um, and the... The, the the Reformation, with its um, weaponization of skepticism, I think, accelerates this um, and adds a whole new series of things to be to be anxious about. Especially for for Protestants, the the the, the issue that a lot of anxieties focus on is the Bible. Um, you know, Protestants will will um, insist that the Bible, the Old and New Testament, are the Word of God. Um, and they will argue a little bit amongst themselves about exactly what that means, but the inspiration of the text is fundamental. It's the source of authority. And yet Protestant theology struggles a little bit to give a, a really clear answer to the question of, well, how do we know that this book is the word of God? Um, and it struggles not because they, they don't think it's an important question or because they don't have convincing answers to it or answers that seem to them convincing, but because the fundamental answer that they want to give is we know because of the witness of the Holy Spirit, because of the conviction that you, the reader, that we, the community reading it, experience when we encounter the text, which I don't think it's too crude to say that that, that really means that we know because we just know. Because the you know, we, we we have that kind of intuitive emotional encounter with the with the text, and I mean actually in Protestant theology that makes a lot of sense because you you know you want to say that everything is ultimately dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit um, that you know you, you have this very strong doctrine of God's sovereignty that even faith itself is something that we are predestined either to have or not to have. And therefore, if you see it, you see it. If you don't, you don't. And that just shows whether or not you're predestined to faith and amongst the, amongst the saved. Um, 
But it does mean that if you find yourself struggling with that kind of thing, then this is not a system that has easy answers to offer you. Um, that faith is go- is something that you you may or may not be able to attain. Um, and there's the potential there for the universe to suddenly become a very, very lonely place in which you've got these these churches telling you things to believe that you find yourself struggling to hold on to, even though you know the intellectual structures are are there, but actually keeping a firm grip on them is 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 really hard, and of course, you. The last thing that you can do is tell anybody about this. It's almost become like love, to to like to fall in love. It's or that you know what is to fall in love, or that you don't know how is to fall in love, and it's also very individual, right? So, it cannot be. I I, I wonder. One, what you should do when you don't feel it. <laughs> Second, what's the role of the community? Like, is it the role of the community to give you, um, to be a place where you're welcome to try to feel it? Is, do the, or by being next to them, there is more chance that you will feel the Holy Spirit. Um, can you help us to understand better what should happen there? Well, I don't know if, if if I can help, but it was those those are the questions that pastors and theologians are asking with increasing frequency and urgency as 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 you get into the into the seventeenth century in particular, um, when the the awareness that they've got a real pastoral problem of 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 doubt and of people struggling with their 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 unbelief with their atheism as they're calling it, um amongst amongst their congregations and this happens to to some of the great christian theologians i mean john bunyan author of progress um describes in his youth spending a year when he is assaulted by doubts of this kind is the bible the word of god is the soul immortal is there a god at all um and i mean the way he talks about this and this is very common in these sorts of accounts is as something attacking him from outside um he says that he he tries to resist by arguing against this by coming up with all the intellectual arguments that he wants to line up and he says that as a way of resisting this is like a baby trying to resist being kidnapped by screaming um you know you can make a lot of noise but you're not actually going to do anything um and when you when you look at at the the recommendations that people are given on how to deal with these sorts of crises they they tend to say especially i think the ones from the the the, the wiser theologians and pastors tend to say this should not be about about argument you know they they, they always frame this in terms of of these suggestions are coming from the devil um, and you know the one thing that everybody knows about the devil is he's quick on his feet. Um, you know you're you're unlikely to be able to to outfox him in a battle of wits. Um, and and therefore a lot of it is about the sort of things you suggest, aligning yourself with the with the community. Um, there are a, 
you know, images are often used like, you know, a single stick, a single burning stick, if taken out of the fire, um, will go out. But if, if plunged into the fire with the rest of them, they will all, will all keep each other alight. So, you know, be a part of the community, um, you know, a, a, a attend worship, um, see the sacraments. Um, there's, there's often a sense of, you know, if, if, you know, if, if, if you've broken your faith, as it were, then just set it in a plaster cast of, of, of good, pious practice and hold it, for, hold it in place for long enough that it'll heal naturally. Um, so that there are all kinds of, 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 of recommendation, of practical suggestions of that sort. And, and it should be said, for a lot of people, this sort of thing works. Um, and many, many of these accounts of, of of people being tempted as they see it by by doubt are we have because they've told us about them from later periods of tranquility. They're looking back on it as as an episode which they've passed through. But for many of them, it it doesn't, and you have to start resolving that anxiety in a more active way. Um, and you know, one of the images that they keep coming back to us, I was, I was very struck by this, is um, Jesus's parable of the, um, the, you know, the men who build houses on, on sand or on rock. Um, you know, what's your faith truly grounded on is the, is the question. And if you begin to suspect, if your anxiety is gnawing away at you, and you begin to suspect that your faith is, is not quite properly grounded. Then what you've got to do is demolish it and dig, and you know rip up the ground until you find bedrock that you can that you can actually build something solid. And so one of the things, and I, I think this is a really important part of the story that you you start to see happening, is these these groups of anxious believers wrestling with their unbelief, seeking out a firmer ground to build or to rebuild their faith on. And that may mean them questioning things that that look pretty fundamental to other believers. In some ways, this is what the Protestants had been doing from the beginning, but now it's it's being turbocharged. Um, And and so you start getting groups um, amongst, amongst some of the radicals saying, well, so, you know, baptism, this, this, Fundament, you know, maybe doing you know, Are we doing it the right way? Do we need to do it at all? Have we mistaken this outward act for something that should be should be inward and spiritual? The Bible. We've some of us have got very hung up on you know, can this this rather miscellaneous collection of ancient texts really be the word of God? Well, maybe it's not, or maybe not all of it is. Maybe we need to, to, to kind of go through that to try to find something that's purer and higher. And you look at that through one eye, and it's, it's an act of, of intense faith and piety. You're trying to get closer to God to cut through these errors. But you look at it through the other eye, and it's enormously destructive to faith that, that people are, are, are questioning the fundamentals, the, you know, the things that have, have underpinned the life the life of the church, and so the the landscape starts suddenly to fill up with these these kind of bands of 
of roving explorers kind of digging it up, tearing things up, knocking down existing temples of faith on the basis that, no, there's something not quite right there. We're not sure about the solidity with which this is built and always going down and down, digging up more and more in the attempt to find something really solid. And sometimes they find something that seems solid to them and sometimes they don't. But the damage that is done to the landscape of traditional faith along the way is is enormous. My question is, um, or it's, I'm not sure it's a question, maybe it's, um, it's, it's something that really touched me by what you share. Um, there is a, a mystical Jewish saying that speaks that by looking towards the divine, in order to really touch the divine, you're losing the divine. Um, and, and in a way, it's very, um, it's, it's similar, right? By, by the need to ask questions, you also open the questions that maybe we are not allowed to ask. Um, and the question is like, what exactly is the divine and, and what does it mean to believe? Um, I wonder, you mentioned before, um, Alec, about um, that faith becomes something that you have it. And I wonder, because in the book you mentioned Pascal, and Pascal in a way say that mm-hmm it will not help you to start learning philosophy of religion or theology because it's something else. Is it similar, his claim to what you shared with us? I, I, I think so very much. I mean, I, I, I was, um, I, I kind of knew about Pascal, but only properly read him quite late in, 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 in working on this book. You know, this this is this is it. You know, the guy has already said everything that I wanted to say. <laughs> um, I, 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 I think you know he's 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 writing in the in in the sixteen sixties, which is I think the the you know close to the to the crux of this. You know, it's the same decade as Spinoza is writing, where where unbelief really comes out into the open in full dress, as it were. You know, has 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 attained some some real philosophical sophistication, um, and. Pascal, you know, who's a who's a Catholic, but belongs to this this movement called Jansenism, which is you know a, a, a Catholic theological movement that draws heavily on 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 um, Saint Augustine and has, well, let's just say some parallels with 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 Calvinism. Certainly has a, a, an equally strong emphasis on on, on divine sovereignty, um, and. Pascal, you know, who's, who's a great mathematician, is also very clear about the limits of of rationalization, um, and of, and very much talks about the difference between mathematical knowledge and intuitive knowledge of, of, of you know, dif- different spheres, each of them valid in their in their own way. But you shouldn't try to ask one to do a job that's that, that the other is. Is, is better equipped for, um, and I mean, Pascal's maybe not most famous now theologically for for his his so-called wager. You know how how uh, you know his his supposed attempt to, as the way it's usually told, almost to trick people into belief by saying, well, you know, if um, if you believe and go to heaven, then if, if whereas if you if you believe in your right, then you'll go to heaven. If you, you you don't believe in your right, then nothing will happen. Therefore, belief is the more rational option. Um, which I mean, I think when you read when you read his actual argument, I think it's pretty clear he doesn't expect this to convince anybody. 
um, I, it, that argument isn't it, itself isn't original to him either. But what he's he's saying um, is that th- this that sort of argument just shows how ridiculous trying to solve this question of belief rationally is. Um, that ultimately it's belief is something which we are given rather than something that that we can attain to ourselves. So insofar as there's anything we can do, and I don't think he's clear that there is really anything we can do, it's to stop trying to, to, to work ourselves up into unbelief, in, 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 into belief, but to accept our our dependence on God to to receive faith, um, and to recognise that that is that is itself what what faith is that gesture of kind of open handed dependence um, is 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 the route to attain faith rather than furiously attempting to argue yourself um, into into believing something. You know, it's it's it, it's it's like um, you know, a, a, a plane trying to to take off by blowing air under its own wings. You know, the the the, the lifting force needs to come from from outside you in that sense. And but then we also reduce the anxiety, right? Because sure. in a way, it's a role of the divine to come to us, not less than us to be, and and we need to be open for that. Yes, absolutely, but. Um, reducing the anxiety is is easier said than done because if you're within this kind of framework that says, well, if you're not given the gift of faith, then the result is eternal damnation. Um, th- that does generate a certain amount of anxiety <laughs> around itself. Um, and so, I mean, the, the the people who you know whose whose misery you know, kind of seeps off the page when you're you're reading them. Are these these folks who've got enough faith to believe that they're damned, but not enough to be confident that they have a a, a, a true or a saving faith? And it's 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 those folks whose whose suffering becomes profound, and that itself often leads to a kind of act of of moral rebellion. You know, how could God construct a a, a, a universe in in which my attempts to believe are are, are insufficient, and maybe if I don't believe, then I should just not believe and and attempt to walk away from faith. Um, although, as you say, you know, on the analogy of 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 of, of falling in love, um, you may not be able to decide to do it. But it's also not easy to just say, right, well, I'm going to decide not to be in love with this person and just walk away and not do it. You know, it follows. Right. And then my my next question is: Do we have slowly? slowly in, 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 in that time, is there any role in society or in theology for this group of people, which be, I'm sure there are many of them, that at least for now, they don't feel the touch of the divine? Like, I wonder if the church find a unique role for them. It's like, you are the one who are looking for but didn't get yet the touch of the divine or something like that. Like, I wonder if the church, in a way, tried to give a narrative to the unbelievers yet. That's a really interesting question. Um, 
I think in in this sort of period, so in the kind of 16th, 17th, 18th century, there's there's two ways that you can do that, and neither of them are very satisfactory. Um, uh, and the first one, the kind of easy one, if you're like a big established national church to do, you know, something which the entire population is compelled to belong to, um, is to pretend that everybody is going to be fine in the end. Um, you know, if you read the, the English Book of Common Prayer, it assumes that everybody there belongs to God's elect and is is, 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 is going to be predestined for salvation. And so the world then gets divided into those who've received this call to salvation and those who haven't yet but will do at some point in the future. And the question of what about the people who are here who, who may be entirely outside the kingdom and will remain that is, is one that they just don't address. Um the other way of doing it, which is the more kind of sectarian way, and the two blur into each other because you find these kind of holiness movements within big established churches, um, is to say, well, those other people out there, the, the mass, the, the, the large majority of the people, the carnal believers, um, are there as exemplars of divine justice. So for us, the the elect, to look at them and to tremble, because that's what we could have been if it wasn't for for, for God's mercy in in selecting us. Um, and of course, it may be that some of them will be um, you know will, will will be rescued, will be plucked like brands from fire. Um, but essentially, what they are there for is is to demonstrate God's justice. Um, in condemning sin in the same way that the elect are there to demonstrate God's mercy in saving sinners. Um, and I mean, the, the, the classic Calvinistic schemes, you know, show those two as, as, as paired um, purposes of the whole of creation. Like I say, maybe not very satisfactory, but those are the kinds of answers that they would give. Thank you. So in chapter six, you bring you you share with us about um the book that was published of the great impostors. Um I think <laughs> yeah. it was published right in 1680. Um can you share with us a little bit about why you choose this specific book and what we can learn from it? Uh, okay, well, I mean that that book is um it, it's there's a long prehistory to it. Um which is that deep back in the Middle Ages, rumors had started to circulate that there was a book called Of the Three Impostors. Um, and the rumors always said that this book was about, the, you know, the three impostors are Moses, are Jesus, and Muhammad. Um, the founders of the three great um, monotheistic religions that are known in, 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 in Europe, um, and it said that this book supposedly says that these three are the three great frauds who created um, this, these, these, these huge systems of, of, of deceit. The, the crucial thing to understand about this book is that it did not exist. Um, it's, a, it's a rumor. 
you know, I've I've now already told you everything that anybody ever really knew about it. You know, all you need is the title. It sums up the, uh, and and the kind of the, the identification of who the three imposters are. It sums up the entire argument. You don't need to write the book. Um, and I mean, eventually, uh, the, you know, there, there there are people hunt for it. There's this this whole kind of quest to locate it. It's you know, it's clear that the thing never existed. Um, a couple of versions of it do get written up in French in the 18th century. Um, you know, when people eventually think there really should be a book to go with this terrific title, and you know, inevitably they're disappointing. You know, they're, they're anticlimaxes. You can't you can't live up to it to a villain like that. But the book that that you mention of the of the, of the three great imposters um, is it is is a, a a kind of parody or a theist's answer to to that idea um because it's attacking not um uh, moses jesus and muhammad the the three founders of the fraud of belief but it's fa- it's attacking um three individuals who are seen as the the founders of what's beginning to look like an intellectual tradition of atheism um two englishmen and uh, a, a dutchman um, uh, Edward Herbert of of Cherbury, who is a the, you know, the least well known of them now, who's a philosopher um, who develops a theory of universal religion, um, which he thinks underpins all human religions and and and, and unites them. It actually looks pretty tame nowadays, um, uh, but it was it was it was certainly felt to be shocking at the time. He's, he's the brother of the poet George Herbert, um, much more conventional believer. Um, uh, Thomas Hobbes, the the, the political philosopher, um, who was accused of being an atheist in his own time, but actually I, I think is is more in the kind of mode of Machiavelli earlier, somebody who's for whom the the power of politics is so overwhelming that the kind of question of the reality or not of God is is something that he he doesn't really want to to risk building into his political system, um, although he's much more theologically engaged than, than, than Machiavelli was. Machiavelli would never have written a couple of books about biblical interpretation. Um, and the third one, by far and away the most important one, is Baruch Spinoza, um, you know, who, who is, um, you know, of, of, of course, a Dutch Jew uh, who is expelled from his synagogue for asking many of these sorts of questions that I've been talking about, um, who falls in with a group of, of Christian spiritualist radicals um, and, and makes friends with some of the early Quakers who are questioning some of these fundamental aspects of scriptural religion. Um, and uh, there's it's sometimes not clear to what extent he borrowed from the Quakers or they borrowed from him, or there's just an exchange of ideas. But he's, he's clearly very much part of, of that world. And then produces these, these series of books, which are devastating attacks on the, not on the, the concept of God, but on the concept of scripture and on the concept of the supernatural. Um, I, I, I don't think it's right to say that Spinoza is an atheist. Um, in some ways, it's a profoundly theological system that he can that he constructs, and the the, the faith, the sense of 
of of moral theology that suffuses it is 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 profound. But I do think that he ends up creating a a philosophical structure in which a world without God becomes properly imaginable, intellectually respectable for the first time. So, you know, the, the extent to which he's often taken as the, as the founding father of, of, of modern atheism is, is fair, even if he, he wouldn't belong in that camp himself. And in some ways, it's because he then makes it intellectually respectable that that's kind of almost the point where my story stops that the emotional history now gets joined by the intellectual history and you can carry on and jump through all your enlightenment philosophers and scientists and, 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 and do that thing. Because I think by then the action is really over. Thank you. Thank you so much. I love that you call your book um, Unbelievers because it's not that... Um, because they struggle with a belief. It's like the, sure. it's, it's, an, it's an action um, mm-hmm. where today for at least some people who are born into... Um, a more atheist uh, sphere or culture um, it's a less it's maybe not relevant question but here what you share with us I think in the book is like it's the struggle of the people and the story of them of moving and shifting from believers to unbelievers um, so Alec thank you so much and thank you for being with us oh, thank you it's, it's been a great pleasure to talk about this with you